Hi, I'm James Eaton. I'm a partner in the tax department here at SCNH, and I'm here with Ken Mann, who is what? Ken, are you a director of our um, investment banking practice? That's right. I'm a director for SCNH Capital. Uh, in particular, I specialize in what are known as special situations, uh, companies that have uh, some financial or other trouble that makes it a little bit more difficult for them to raise money or to go to market. But um, yes, I'm a director in the capital practice in general. Super. And so Ken and I got together because we were really interested in uh, in some of the tax and, and sort of more global economic effects of, uh, of some of the proposed changes to tax law. And, and these are some of the changes we've heard about uh, specifically with respect to changes to the capital gains tax and, and tax rates um, that have been d discussed in Washington and the, the Biden administration. Um, so Ken and I, we've kind of chatted about these things. We've got some ideas and we'd, we'd like to kind of work on them and, and share them with the group. Um, Ken, do you want to give a quick overview of what you're hearing on the street about these uh, changes? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the one that, that I'm focused on that my clients care most about is the change in treatment um, of capital gains, where they don't get a preferential rate compared to income tax, but rather um, just are treated at uh, at the taxpayer's highest income tax bracket. And uh, so this is a huge swing. I mean, you would take take people roughly from 23% to 43% um, on long-term capital gains just in federal taxes before you apply the state. And we've seen here in the last week or two, some states jumping on the bandwagon and adding to their capital gains tax. So um, that's a pretty meaningful difference and it impacts the sale of businesses. It can impact the, the sale of your home, uh, investment properties and so forth. So it's got a lot of people scratching their head and saying, wait, do I need to go to market now? Super. Well, let's take a minute. Let's take a minute and, and kind of go back and think about what it is that we're hearing, right? So if we hear these things, we see them on the news, and and one of the main tenets of um, the proposals coming out of Washington, they sort of talk about a couple of different things. They talk about raising the long-term capital gains tax rate um, to the taxpayer's highest ordinary income tax rate, and that begets the question: What is the taxpayer's highest ordinary income tax rate? And that's sort of the, the second follow on effect. So there's been a discussion of taking that highest uh, ordinary income tax rate from 37% uh, back up to a 39.6% rate where it's been, um, you know, uh, maybe before the past eight to 10 years, it was there for, for a long time. That was the highest ordinary income tax rate. We have a couple of factors. Um, hey, will my taxes go up if uh, the highest ordinary income tax rate goes from 37 to 39.6%? That's true. That would be true. The discussion we're hearing is that's for folks making greater than a million dollars. Like in so many cases, the, the the kind of devil's in the details, and we have to think about what that means as far as is it AGI, is it taxable income? How do we deal with married versus single folks um, versus head of household folks? So so those are things we'll we'll like to to see more detail on as as we come along. But I think the more important factor uh, that we're outlining, Ken is this idea that for folks making a million more than a million dollars, uh, capital gains rates would go from some lower rate uh, to the taxpayer's highest ordinary rate. And let's just assume if you were making more than a million dollars, you're gonna be in the highest tax bracket. So again, what are our tax rates now? Well, for very low income taxpayers, long-term capital gains rates, and those are rates for uh, assets held greater than a year, are zero. 
right? And then for kind of the middle class, middle market uh, clients, those tax rates are 15%. Once you get over uh, a few hundred thousand dollars of income, then you're looking at a capital gains rate of 20%. And then we add on the net investment income tax, the NIT tax, that's another 3.8. So that's getting us to Ken's 23, 24% federal tax rate when he's working with his clients that are saying, hey, I'm selling something. What that would look like uh, you know, uh, on, under the new proposal would be instead of being at a 20% plus 3.8, you'd be at somewhere you know, in that 37 to 39% plus 3.8. That's getting us to 43, 44% uh, federal tax rate, and then five to eight, maybe something like that in many states, getting us pretty close to 50%. You pick a couple of those states with higher tax rates, you're looking at 52, 54% tax rates on a capital gain transaction. Now, Ken, one of the things you and I have talked about is, well, that's only for folks making a million dollars. But in your line of work, that's everybody you talk to, because even if you only make a few hundred thousand dollars a year, when you sell your business, you're going to be in one of these million dollar scenarios. You want to think about that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, it's a couple of things to think about there. Even if you don't make a million dollars a year, you're going to in the year you sell your business or your investment property. And so uh, all of a sudden you're you're over that one million dollars and it's easy to make it seem like that's a tiny percentage of the population. But a lot of people have assets that would put them over one million dollars. And, you know, I think what what capital gains tax tends to ignore is the lumpiness, so to speak, meaning if I own a business for 10 years and it appreciates at two hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. That would keep me well under the million dollars. But because I have to take it all at once, $200,000 a year times 10 years is $2 million. We all know many business owners whose business and, and personal income is a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, right? You know, just take a, take a small business making $350,000 a year, right? If they can sell that for a five times multiple, boom, they're over the number. Uh, and then likewise, inflation, you know, if you own a building or inflation has increased the value of your asset, your family farm, your industrial building, whatever it is over some long period of time and capital gains tax don't really make any allowance for that. Unlike income tax, where those brackets creep up over time to keep up with inflation. So the million dollar threshold to me sounds good, but, um, I, people shouldn't take a lot of comfort in that. I think uh, everyone that we work with is going to be over that million dollars in the year they sell their business. Sure. Now we should take maybe one moment, right? And and so this is Ken, something that maybe you and I internalize, but you'd be amazed how many uh, events I go to and I speak to folks uh, and really smart folks, and they don't always get the idea that when we say, hey, there's a hundred, a million dollar level, that doesn't mean that when you make a million one, that all your capital gains are subject to that very high rate, right? What we would, we would be talking about is the marginal income above that million dollar level, right? So if we had a million five in your example um, of, of capital gains, we'd have a little bit that might be subject to that 0% rate. And we'd have some that was subject to that 15% rate. Maybe we'd have a bunch that was subject to that 20% plus 3.8, about 24% rate. Only the marginal income above our million dollar level would be subject to this very high tax rate. So in that scenario, you say, and then a question we often get, hey, I'm in a X. I'm in a 37% tax bracket. I made a million dollars. Shouldn't my tax be 370,000? But James, it's only 250. What's going on here? 
because you get the benefit of those lower rates as they move up, right? So it's a graduated system. You should always take a minute to kind of outline. Yeah. Is it, let me just ask you, James, is that fairly certain to hold true if there's an increase in the capital gains tax? Certainly, if it becomes ordinary income, it's true, um, right? But is there is there a proposal on the table that says, no, it's a cliff, you are over a million, so you pay this on on all of it? So like so many things, we don't have a bill yet even to review. What we have is a white paper and kind of a, a statement of intent um, from the administration. So I think the working assumption is that we're thinking uh, it would be marginal over a million. Um, the Biden administration has been very forthright in saying, hey, folks making less than 400,000, which I guess in today's world is like the definition of middle class, um, are not going to be impacted. Um, but to your point, someone making 350 or $400,000 a year, living a good life, uh, and sell a business for $2 million, well, they would say, I'm a $400,000 person who's being impacted, right? I'm having a one-time liquidity event. Uh, but I think the working assumption is that we're assuming we're, it's going to be one of these million dollars and then you go up. You know, the, the classic example of this is, I think, uh, for years or, or a few years ago, New York had a, an estate tax. And let's just say the exemption was like $2 million. And so if you had an estate worth $1,999,000, you owed zero. But if you had an estate that was worth $2 million, you owed 10% on the entire $2 million. So your marginal tax rate on the $2 between $1,999,000 and, and, and $2 million was like infinity percent, right? Um, so I think that's what we're hoping to avoid. The question of whether there would be a phase-in range is, you know, that would be, I think, a little bit further down the road uh, as far as that goes. One other quick point before you move on to another topic. You know, remember, I think in 1966 when Congress uh, got all hopped up about the fact that there were 155 people who were making over $200,000 and they needed to be taxed differently. The alternative minimum tax captured 155 people. In 2017, it captured 5 million people. And so I think people should uh, should anticipate that if this doesn't raise the revenue it was designed to, um, that number could change and it could creep down over time to impact other people. Ken, I didn't know we were going to do statistics. I would have been better prepared. Um, I love tax statistics, and, and if you want to see some interesting things, we can spend some time there. I think, to your point, you could argue that we are dealing today, this very day, uh, we are dealing with the aftermath of that alternative minimum tax. Um, and I say that briefly uh, to say that AMT kicked in back in the day, and we were dealing with that uh, back through 2017. And in order to do away with the alternative minimum tax, the uh, 2018 tax reform did away with the state and local tax deduction, SALT deduction, which was by and large the vast majority of people that were subject to the AMT was because of that. Um, and so we did away with the AMT and we did away with the SALT deduction. And so people said, oh, hey, uh, high tax areas, we're not getting this benefit. And then, uh, so in, in my practice, we've been working with the Maryland pass-through entity election for a year now, which is basically a workaround to get business owners a deduction that went away because the AMT was supposed to weigh so. Uh, that is uh, the law of unintended consequences, I think. Yeah. Um, hey, so we could spend a lot of time on this. Maybe we we think about how does this impact uh, going concern business versus an investment property versus maybe a primary residence I've lived at for some years. But before we do that, let's take one minute and talk about another something in this in this sphere. And the, the question is, uh, we hear a lot of folks or some folks 
saying, hey, if you do this kind of tax on capital gains, not only is it going to affect uh, private investors, but the public markets could be in, uh, in, uh, affected. Do you have a feel for that? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, you're, you're, you set up the table for me to throw out another statistic. According to the, uh, the uh, Congress's uh, estimators of such facts, the CBO, uh, every 1% increase in capital gains tax decreases the number of dollars realized through sales by 1.2%, right? So the theory is that you can choose when to sell an asset, whether it's a stock, a home, whatever. And so you will choose to hold on to it and pass it on to your heirs or to sell it when there's a different administration in office or what have you. So I do think it's going to impact the markets. It, it has to, to a certain degree. So I think many people will try to capture the gains that they have before year end. Um, and then others that don't are probably not going to be so eager to trade in or out in the next few years. They might become uh, long-term holders of whatever asset pool they're in. So it certainly has to change the calculus that an investor goes through. What type of investment do I want to be in? How long am I going to hold it? How much cash do I want to take off the table right now when I can? So how can it not impact it would be my question. Sure. Yeah, I think you could spend a lot of time looking at these things. It's very interesting, you know, with respect to barriers to entry and exit um, being one school of thought, right? We should, there are people in the world who, who kind of contend we should have a 0% capital gains rate because then people would get into and out of the best investments for them at any given time. And the flip side of that is the people that say, my sweat equity should be no different than your capital equity, and those should be taxed the same way. And so broadly, uh, in the past, say, 20 years or so, we've had kind of an idea of some portion of that. And the, the capital gains and dividends rates have been roughly half of what ordinary income tax rates have been. Interestingly, that was really something that has been uh, orthodoxy of one of the political parties for a long time. And the, uh, the dot-com burst uh, in the late 90s and then into 2000 uh, really gave a charge to that. And the idea was, hey, we should cut these capital gains rates to stimulate the, the investment economy. Um, and it's now been 20 years since these sort of things. And we think, hey, capital gains rate and dividends rates should be lower. But for a long, long time, they weren't, right? They were you know, closer to 28 or, or higher percent. Um, so it's a, a really interesting um, exercise in, in normalization, what seems normal. Um, I think another aspect that affects capital markets is, is and tangential, um, the ongoing discussion of changes to the step up in basis regime. So currently when someone passes away, the basis of their assets has stepped up to its fair market value. So if I had a million dollars of stock and no basis, and I were to sell it, I'd have a large capital gain. Maybe I'd owe $200,000 in taxes. But if I hold those assets until I die and I pass those to my heirs, their basis has stepped up to the fair market value. The day after I pass, my heirs sell the million dollars and their basis is a million and they have zero gain and thus they owe zero tax. So there's been um, a, an inherent kind of bias toward buy and hold once you get to a certain point in life, uh, both in public markets and in, in, in your line of work in private businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's critical to know what the outcome is going to be there because think about it. I mean, it's one thing to buy and trade out of a publicly traded stock. It's a different matter to sell your family business or your family farm or whatever it is, your, your family's beach house, because um, suddenly a tax bill is due upon someone's death and you don't happen to have 
a couple hundred thousand dollars laying around to pay that tax. So it is both a substantial change in the tax that would be due if you didn't have the step up and potentially um, a change in when that tax would be due, right? It could cause uh, people to have to sell upon inheriting an asset that uh, came with a big tax bill. Sure. Yeah, and I think while we're looking into our our uh, crystal ball, um, you know, the kind of one step further down the line is the idea of making, well, depending on who you talk to, uh, making death a taxable event, or uh, another party might say, um, having having a deemed sale at death. And so maybe that's more like Canada uh, has a scenario like this, maybe the UK, where you say, okay, uh, at my demise, my assets are deemed to be sold, right? So that would, you would still get the step up in basis because you would have a taxable event. But in that scenario, you'd say, hey, I've got that million dollars of, of uh, Apple stock. Even though I don't sell it, which doesn't actually force the market down, I'm going to be treated on, on my income tax return, my estate income tax return, as if I sold it. So then I'm going to have capital gains tax on this. And again, that, that gets you into the regime where that could cause a phantom income experience. And that could drive us up over a million. And now we're in these high tax rates and all these, these sort of things. So you can build these um, sort of methodologies on top of each other. Yeah. Who do you want to take first, a home, an investment property, or a business? uh let's talk about well let's do um uh let's start with a business let's think about a business first i think that could be fun okay i mean here's how i look at it if i told you that you could have a 35 percent better outcome by doing something now versus later how inclined would you to be to do it now you know and that's really what this potentially comes down to um you know if you're talking about large enough dollars where the bulk of the money is is over the one million dollar threshold and you look at how you would be taxed in the future under that plan versus how you would be taxed today um, by selling today you achieve a 35 percent higher net without doing anything without growing your business without getting better multiples so clearly um, people are going to look at that and say, well, if I was thinking about getting out sometime in the next four or five, six years, why don't I just take the 35% better with no risk? Now, James, we have clients who say, but I'm sure I can grow the business 10% a year. Okay, let's play that out. First of all, there is execution risk. I mean, hopefully you can, but things things happen, right? Maybe it doesn't grow 10%. Secondly, we're at record high multiples right now. Valuations are through the roof. So you have to rely on multiples staying exactly the same or improving for that model to work. It's pretty unlikely as multiples are largely driven by what return you can get in other environments and what the interest rates are. So low interest rates are keeping multiples very high. But let's say that you believe that they're going to stay exactly the same and you can grow the business 10% a year for three years. Well, that all sounds good. I did a little quick math here and a simple example. Let me just, uh, let me read that to you. So if you, if you um, had a business that you thought you could sell for $7.7 million today, right? And you can grow it at that 10% a year, you go from $7 million to a valuation of 9.3 and change, but you actually take home less, right? So you grew the value a couple million dollars, 
but your return is less. And you got it three years later, you had execution risk, and you had market risk that you have no control over as to multiples. So from a business perspective, you know, I think it's a pretty serious issue. Yeah, and I think um, that that's conceptual, right? And you and I maybe live in that world. The real world is, I had lunch with a client yesterday who said, yeah, I've been talking to these folks for two years, but I'm going to call them back tomorrow. And, and you know, we're going to sell this business by the end of the year, um, which is is really kind of interesting. In in your world, it's transactional. And you got to say, hey, what can we get when we have a liquidity event? I also, in, in my kind of world where we work with ongoing clients over a period of time on annual compliance and planning structures, we also look at this and say for years, years, we had folks that would come up with these really fairly complex structures to make their key employees and even some sort of manager and rank and file type employees, uh, uh, you know, kind of in for these, these um, the gains or liquidity events or how we would set these things up. And all of all, much of this complex transactions uh, were, were set up so that those folks could take advantage of capital gains rates in the event of a sale, right, in the event of a liquidity event. Uh, but if if we say, hey, you know, gains for in, in liquidity event years, and of course we're talking about a million dollars or higher, but let's just assume that you're going to sell something for ten or fifteen or twenty million dollars, and your your key folks are going to get a, a chunk of that. Um, really, you can set up whether it be a bonus plan or a synthetic equity plan, and you say, hey, well, when the million dollars comes in, it's going to come in as wages, right? Which you would in today's world, you'd say that's going to be at a higher tax rate. But in that future period of time, you say, well, it's really not, right? Because uh, if you get over that million dollar threshold, then we're still talking about a scenario where the income would be taxed at very close to the same rate. So we look at things like that and say, um, from an entity structuring for an ongoing and future looking perspective, maybe that simplifies some things, um, but simplicity at what cost, right? Right. Take away creativity. And, you know, yes, it's going to change deal terms, right? I mean, earnouts, you know, people try to avoid things that are going to be treated as income yeah. options people wanted options because it would be capital gains those things will certainly change and you know likewise asset sale versus stock sale so right sellers have preferred stock sales buyers have preferred asset sales you're the tax guy tell me it doesn't seem to make any difference now you, you might as well both do an asset sale if you're going to have capital gains be treated as income. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's the same thing, right? But it's much closer, right? So so if we have your seven to $10 million sale, if that's a number we talk about, um, we're always gonna have, likely gonna have some ordinary income if we do you know, an asset sale versus a, a stock sale. But for years, as you say, the seller would say, boy, I can achieve that 20 or 30% IRR hurdle um, by structuring it as a, a, a stock sale. And you would come and you'd say, well, you know, uh, the buyer would say, well, I would pay you $10 million if I could buy your assets and then I could depreciate them. And that's a benefit to me as the buyer. I'll pay you $7 million if I have to buy the stock. And then the mathematics would say, okay, you'd come to folks like you and I, and you'd say, well, what happens if, what do I take away in cash if I do an asset sale versus a stock sale? And there's some give and take there. That takes that hurdle from, you know, a difference between 10 million and 7 million, and maybe it makes it a difference between 10 million and 9 million, right? And you say, right? What's what's the difference here? So it really narrows that down. And so it makes it much more, maybe it makes it much more of a buyer's market to say, hey, we can buy assets um, and, and we can we can do those at slightly lower multiples, but we get to then buy hard assets to the extent that's that's part of the business model. 
which we can depreciate and, and recover our basis and, and get a tax effect. And as you know, that all goes into your IRR calculations on the on the buy side. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it sort of changes the ground rules that we have taken as as kind of um, the standards for maybe a generation, right? And we we have to recalculate and re rethink about those things. All right, let's talk about an investment property. Sure. Right, so I think that's that's an interesting one. Uh, why don't you lay out a, maybe a, a set of facts we can think about? Well, so you know, lots of our clients have some uh, either industrial property that they're leasing to the business, and or they have rental properties. They might have ten condos down in Ocean City, for example, uh, that are producing rental income, and they're trying to plan that into their future. Is that is that my income in retirement? Um, and as I see it, you know, a lot of these industrial buildings in particular have been depreciated down to zero. They have no basis. So at the time, if, if the business owner decides to sell the business um, and sell the building at the same time or just sell the building, um, they're going to have a substantial tax, which currently would be taxed at the preferred capital gains rate. But next year, maybe not. So does that push people to, you know, maybe I'll sell the building now and lease it back? Yeah, and so uh, you do give me a great entree into tax guy dorkdom, which is where I live, right? So we got a couple of things that we think about immediately in this situation, right? And I think maybe that's different um, than where you are, right? Because um, we see these things on a daily basis and you deal with like actual dollars and we deal with tax com concepts. Um, so the first couple of things I started thinking about are if, as you say, hey, we bought this property and then we depreciated it and so it has low basis. Um, the proposals we're seeing do not change the, the 1250 recapture regime, right? So 1250 recapture says that portion of the gain attributable to depreciation you've taken in the past will be taxed at a rate not greater than 25%, right? So let's just say you bought a, a building for half a million and it's appreciated to a million, but in the meantime, you've depreciated it down to 250,000. Now we got a sale for a million, basis is 250000 You say, hey, I got a $750,000 gain. But the portion of that gain attributable to the depreciation, so from the $500,000 basis down to the $250,000 basis, adjusted basis today, that $250,000 is subject to 1250 regime, which means the tax rate's only going to be 25%. So that hasn't been really terribly high in the past few years. But that turns from um, maybe a, a, a a, a cost to possibly a benefit in this new regime, right? Where the capital gains rate is actually going to be higher than that. So you're going to say, hey, my the, the portion of my gain attributable to depreciation used to be taxed at a rate of 25%, which was higher than 20%. Now it's a tax at a rate of 25%, which is 14 points lower than 39%. Um, so we'll see, well, it'll be very interesting to see if, if people start thinking that through. Um, so we have that, right? We have to figure out there's a bifurcation of that gain. Item number two is, uh, let's just say that uh, we do other things. We're not a real estate professional. I use that term kind of um, in, in capitals um, as, a, as a proper noun. If I'm not a real estate professional, I've got my, my condos in, in Ocean City, and I get revenue from them, and maybe even their cash flow positive, but I get to depreciate them each year, and that's going to cause that 1250 recapture we talked about. Great. But those losses, if I'm not a real estate professional, are kind of trapped within my tax return. And so those losses are passive activity losses. And those losses are pretty less business losses. And, and when I free them up, they're not deductible each year, but when I free them up at, at sale, they offset ordinary income. 
So we see the folks that say this all the time. Hey, I've got the place and it was, I bought it for 600,000. It's been a few years. I can sell it for eight. Uh, you know, what am I going to do? And we look at it and it turns out there's a hundred thousand dollars of ordinary deductions, right? That have been trapped. So that's another factor that factors into this math to say, if you free up these ordinary deductions, again, you'll be picking up capital gains, ordinary deductions that can be really impactful. And it's not the type of thing, even the really smart folks that have a pretty good handle on, on what they're looking at. It's sort of buried on page 38 on the left at the bottom, right? And right. It's not a really clear number to see. So that's something we always want to look at. So in the past year, and, and I guess we'll, we'll continue to see it for the next year, we've had a lot of folks that say again, hey, I've got a $600,000 place and I could sell it for 800. That sounds great. And I'd like to tie, lock in that gain, but I don't want to pay taxes. And so we're going to go with a 1031 like kind exchange, which we've heard a lot about. Um, maybe two comments there. Comment number one is the proposal what we're seeing, it would propose to do away with like kind exchanges. Uh, so those were limited, starting with the 2018 Tax Reform Act, limited to only real estate transactions. Now I think the, the current proposal would actually just get rid of them for real estate transactions as well. That said, a couple of observations. We see a lot of folks that come in and say, oh, I'm gonna sell this thing and I'm gonna have uh, a big gain. Um, and we look at that and we look at the 1250 and we look at the passive activity losses, the PALs, and we say, actually, if you're gonna sell that thing for 800,000, you might end up paying $30,000 or $40,000 in taxes. That might not be the worst thing in the world. Equally, the rules for a like-kind exchange as they're currently laid out are really time sensitive. So you have to identify another piece of property within let's say 45 days, and then you have to uh, buy it and settle it and close it within you know six months. And in, uh, in the past year, we've seen a number of clients that sold $800,000 properties. And you know what they ended up buying? $900,000 properties, right? Because you have to reinvest in, a, in what is a hot market. So there's a lot that goes into that. Um, what do you see in, in your line of work? Do those things make sense? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I, I, my clients frequently bring up these issues because they're people of means and they have these properties. But in our engagements, they're really focused on the industrial property that's tied to the building or, you know, if it's, uh, 50 franchises of a restaurant chain, for example, they might have 50 locations, some of which they own, some of which are leased. And so they want to understand how these things play in. And I'm glad you brought up the 1031 exchange. I mean, that has been a, a favorite tool of many people. And that going away may um, change people's thoughts on timing of some transactions as well. So we've probably spent too much time already. So let's wrap it up on probably the the least significant for most people would just be the the sale of their primary residence. I mean, two hundred fifty thousand, the first two hundred fifty thousand dollars for an individual, or five hundred thousand for a family um, of capital gains is tax free as long as they lived in that property two of the last five years. But it's a pretty crazy market, right? I mean, I live on the eastern shore of Maryland. If you happen to own a house on the water there, you're going. My gain's going to be bigger than five hundred thousand dollars. So, what are people going to be looking at there? Yeah, exactly. So, in that scenario, let's let's walk through a couple of points. Um, caution, dorky tax guy, right? Um, it's not that the gain, um, the the two hundred fifty thousand dollars or five hundred thousand dollars gain is tax free. I mean, essentially it is, but it's actually better than that, right? It's excluded from income, so it doesn't push up your income, thus you're less likely to hit that higher uh, rate. So that would be important if maybe you're selling stocks and things as well, it doesn't doesn't bump up your income. 
So that's a really important one. And and the, the concept has been, you know, the idea is that we want to remove barriers to entry and exit in personal homes. So we want people to be able to buy and sell their homes without having to go through a lot of rigmarole. 20 years ago, there was this idea that you rolled the gain almost like a like kind exchange, right? You sold a house and if you bought a new house, then your basis in the new house uh, for tax purposes was your basis in the old house. You bought a $200,000 house, you waited 10 years, you sold it for 500,000 and then you bought a $500,000 house. Your basis was 200,000. So the idea was eventually you'd have to pay for that. And that's very much the way a like kind exchange works. That's been done away with now for, for 20 years. Uh, so really you have this opportunity to, to sell um, and you have an, an exclusion. And there are some special rules there. But okay, so for most folks, you'd say, hey, a, a $500,000 exclusion would be great. But at the end of the day, it's not like a financial asset. Broadly, you still need a place to live. And so you're going to have to go reinvest it somewhere. Or already transaction costs. So we see that. Another uh, thing that we, we look, sort of talk to clients about is that a like kind exchange does not apply here, right? Because a like kind exchange, by its nature, has to be for business property. So whether we call that investment or we call that industrial, it can't be your personal use property. So you can't do a like kind exchange. Um, so it's, it's definitely something to think about. Uh, if your income's over that million dollar threshold, that really becomes impactful. If you're making two or four or 600,000, you get a $500,000 exemption and you have a few hundred thousand dollars of gain on top of that, then you're really still back in this regime where you're looking at a 20 or 24% um, tax rate, which is a lot. Sure, that could be $50,000 in the example we say. Um, but it's not as egregious as, hey, 50% right off the top. Um, yeah. So those are, are there's a lot of ifs and what ifs that go into that. So we've covered a lot of ground. There's many things for people to be thinking about now, especially if they're nearing retirement and they're thinking, I might want to sell my business or my investment properties. I might be ready to downsize on my house uh, or what have you. And so we can't really try to give answers in a 25 minute uh, conversation, but I think we probably touched on what some of the the key issues are. Anything else you want to address while we're here? I guess the only thing that I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention is in some of these situations where you have these gains, and if, if that looks like something you don't uh, want, like the, the tax impact of, the Qualified Opportunity Zone structures came out back in 2018, I think. Um, and we've heard a lot about them. We can honestly say in our client group that not a lot of clients have made use of them because there's a lot of hurdles you have to get through and these sort of things. Um, but any of the gains we've outlined would be eligible to be rolled into a qualified opportunity zone uh, funding mechanism, which could either defer or even in some cases uh, exclude gain over the long term. That's a long term buy and hold tool. So something to just append to the end of what was a pretty wide ranging discussion. Yeah. So I take away business owners is if this is even on your radar, you're thinking in the next two, three years, now's the time to do something. You know, if by June, and I don't mean it's necessarily time to sell, it's time to round up your professionals and have a conversation and understand, you know, the likely tax consequences and what some of the tools are, trusts and whatnot that you can set up to minimize uh, the tax pain upon a, a transaction. But, you know, here we sit today is uh, Cinco de Mayo. I trust you have a tequila somewhere nearby. Obviously. Uh, okay, yeah. My margarita is hiding in this coffee cup. but. But, uh, you know, we're only three weeks away from June, and I would say June is kind of go time if you're going to close a transaction by the end of the year. So 
whatever it is you're thinking about selling sometime soon, round up your professionals and have a discussion sooner rather than later. Sure, absolutely. Well, James, it was great chatting with you. Uh, we'll have to do some deeper dives on some of these topics we covered today, maybe with somebody um, from other parts of the team that have a particular expertise in the areas we're looking at. Yeah, I think we've got a, a broad spectrum of folks internally um, who can talk about a lot of different factors, all of which affect our business owners, our clients, and, and the sort of perfect storm of events that we have here, with, which are very high multiples, very low interest rates, changing tax kind of uh, uh, landscape. And it puts us in a scenario where folks are having once in a lifetime type scenarios and structures and opportunities that they can't, you don't want to miss out on. And so that's, I think, all you and I are both saying, which is, if you're thinking about these things, you need to start reaching out and getting uh, ducks in, in the proverbial row. Great. All right. Well, good talking with you. Great. Thanks. Take care.